0: Welcome to This Moment in Democracy. I'm Saladin Ambar. This episode was recorded on October 16th, 2023. In today's episode, we explore how film and popular culture contribute to shaping our political culture, the Barbenheimer phenomenon has ignited yet another contentious debate between Democrats and Republicans, liberals and conservatives, even as both films contributed to astounding box office exploits. Joining us to speak about the Barbenheimer phenomenon is Lewis Abramson, Lily Gorin, and Joanna Weiss. Dr. Abramson is an astrophysicist and community organizer in Hollywood. He earned his Ph.D. from the University of Chicago in 2015 and was elected to the Central Hollywood Neighborhood Council in 2019, where he chaired its Homelessness Committee until 2023. In addition to his council role, Louis actively serves on the boards of several nonprofits committing to ending homelessness in Los Angeles. His extensive experience supporting the vulnerable members of his community catalyzed his State Assembly candidacy in 2022 to represent Central L.A. as well as the cities of Santa Monica, Beverly Hills, and West Hollywood. Lily J. Gorin is professor of political science at Carroll University in Waukesha, Wisconsin. Dr. Gorin's research integrates popular culture and literature as a means to understanding politics. She is the author of The Politics of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and Mad Men in Politics, Nostalgia and the Remaking of Modern America. Finally, we have with us Joanna Weiss. Joanna is executive director of the AI Literacy Lab at Northeastern University, a project to connect journalists and technologists. She is a contributing writer at Politico magazine and a former columnist, television critic, and political reporter at the Boston Globe. She is also the author of this summer's Politico article, "What Barbie Says About the Gender Wars." Louis, Lily, and Joanna, welcome to this moment in democracy. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Dean. Thank you. <laughs> it's it's great to see you all here. Uh, much appreciated. Uh, why don't I begin with a first question to Lily, if you can get us going here. How and why did this Barbenheimer moment happen? You write about politics and film for a living. Was there something about this political moment that drove this phenomenon?
1: I think a number of things drove the phenomenon, Um, and you know, I think part of it may also be the uh, the COVID hangover um, and drawing people into the theaters. Um, It was original intellectual property, not part of. Neither movie was part of a franchise, Um, so they were new to viewers and audience members. Um, There was a very, very interesting and apparently now being studied in all kinds of business schools, marketing campaign around Barbie in particular um, from Mattel and from the studio that, you know, sort of really sort of set it up. Um, And I would say that part of what was very interesting for both of the films, but more so for Barbie was the way that it. Was a kind of joyful experience to watch, um, and that 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 sort of sense of joy and delight spectacle. That's not um, people fighting, uh, you know, beings at the end of Marvel movies um, with everything crashing and burning, but instead, uh, you know, a sort of sophisticated but still accessible um, experience. Along with Oppenheimer, which was a historical and very well-made film um, that, you know, sort of told a particular story of a heroic period and a heroic event. Um, so I would say that that those, they were hidden on some, some key spots there.
0: Uh, absolutely. It was uh, interesting to see the intergenerational uh, aspect of this with, uh, parents and sons and daughters, uh, with both films. And I'm sure we, each, uh, have some stories to share about, uh, family experiences perhaps with that, but Louis, as, as a physicist, but also as a practitioner of politics, someone who's engaged in, in both worlds, how did, how did you react to Oppenheimer, uh, as a film, but then also with your sort of secondary hat as someone who's, uh, in politics, um, mm-hmm. How did you react to it? What was your sense uh, of that aspect of the Barbenheimer phenomenon?
2: I think this is a a great question and probably the the only aspect of this topic that I might be qualified to speak on compared to uh, your (laughs) other guests. Um, It was a classic example of a a very common um, political fallacy that folks from my background tend to engage in, which is being right is enough. Oppenheimer is a classic story of a person who was smart, who was right a lot in terms of his technical background, but did not understand that the world is bigger than that. And that ultimately, he was the leader of a mission that was supporting a political end controlled by political actors. um, And he was unable ultimately to convince them to move the world in the direction he wanted, both in the sense that he was um, the, the hydrogen bomb was built, which in the story of his political engagement was his was one of his major antagonisms. Um, And in the sense that he lost his security clearance because he found himself on the wrong side of a political divide, a a terrible political divide um, in the 50s, but nevertheless, the wrong side of one. And I think in that from that context, I'm going to here's my hot take. Barbie is a much better political movie. Barbie is a much more empowered actor agent in her world than Oppenheimer is in his because Barbie overcomes, you know, Barbie never sets out thinking that her her worldview is enough. In fact, most of the movie is her coming to realize she may not have had a worldview. But then she assiduously goes about convincing her peers intellectually and emotionally to reach an objective, which she obtains. And Oppenheimer fails to do that. So I think I mean, as a scientist, we can talk about the science. Um, but as a but as both a scientist and, and a political actor, it's this Scientists are trained to be right, write the paper, walk away. And in politics, that's the beginning of the conversation, not the end. And if you don't recognize that, you leave yourself open to failure.
0: Wow. I, I love that hot take. <laughs> I, the, I think that's terrific. Oh, we'll, we'll come back to you. We're not going to let you off the hook uh, so easily. Uh... Uh, with just that, so, uh, but Joanna, you, you wrote something striking in your piece on Barbie back in July. You said that it is the portrayal of the Kens, the Kens in the film, who quote have the real arc of discovery. Uh, what drew you to the Kens, and why do you suppose the film has become such a focal point of debate uh, in recent weeks?
3: Yeah, I think both of these movies, you know, no movie is ever made outside of its time and no movie is written outside the context of its time. So with Oppenheimer, for instance, part of the context and part of the story was this question of how much the government and how much the population trusts scientists. Right out out of covid, everyone was concerned about are we trusting science? What's the role of science in society? So that was sort of the backdrop to Oppenheimer and the backdrop. To Barbie was a couple of things. One was this question we're all, I think, collectively asking about the limitations of feminism. How far does the the does the idea of women being able to do it all? How how does that kind of rub up or, or bump up against reality? And what are the failures of the the system we've constructed for ourselves for women? And then in terms of men. If you look at the political landscape, there is right now a resurgence in talk on the right, especially about masculinity and this kind of return to this very masculine posture. You see it in politicians like Josh Hawley, who came out with a book over the summer, the Missouri Senator about masculinity. There's a lot of there, there and, and there are a fair amount of books and podcasts that are kind of telling men to go back and be men and take back the economy for themselves. And so Barbie lands in this soup of what are women and what are men and and how are we supposed to relate to each other? And part of the masculinity conversation, I think, has to do with a little bit of a backlash, where if as women become more empowered in society, as they take on more roles, as they take on more public leadership what happens to men and where do men fit in and where do men fit into the economy as the economy is changing. So I think the movie just landed at a place of anxiety and the Ken's were expressing that anxiety sometimes by dancing and sometimes by fighting on the beach.
0: Yes. Uh, to use beach as a noun and a verb, I, I was uh beach oh, is his job. Yeah. I was awestruck by that to be sure. Uh, let, let me turn a little dark here and, and, and throw this out at, at, at each of you. Um, you know, I think on some level the films deal with a kind of permanence of uh, something foreboding for for Barbie. It's the idea that the patriarchy is not only real, but it's this systematic and systemic and and perhaps perennial phenomenon. It's a thing that that's not going away. And I think maybe um, the idea of, of of nuclear weapons and certainly Oppenheimer's um, uh, frightful vision of a world destroyed in flames that seems to be something that we're going to be living with for the foreseeable future so how, how about this idea that uh these are films that are um suggestive of uh an ongoing kind of um set of monstrosities that we have to deal with uh, on on a personal and perhaps a more abstract level how about that or is that too dark for for us today
2: L- lily you want to say something
1: uh yeah i mean i think that this idea of the monstrosity, I think is, is certainly valid. And I think, you know, if you look at the popular culture landscape work that I do on superheroes, you definitely see the antagonist of monstrosity in so many different places in so many different ways that, you know, we've become almost inured to it. Um, But I do think that, You're talking about what um, Joanna also mentioned is that these two films sort of landed at a time where there is this um, feeling of overwhelmedness, um, the coming out of COVID, uh, these questions with regard to, you know, will our... Our political structures remain intact. Um, there's a fragility um, all around us that I think, you know, both men and women are feeling perhaps in different ways um, that, you know, women's bodily autonomy in the United States is something that's under um attack or duress um that this question of you know what it means to be a real man and these questions of masculinity and are are men really sort of fading into the background not that i think that they are but there's you know sort of some of those senses um and then you have these two narratives that are are sort of teasing at both of those things in a lot of ways i mean in very much in the you know sort of um the the man at the center, at the heart of of the story, the heroic man in a tragedy, is what we see in Oppenheimer. Um, and then we do have both Ken and Barbie um, facing different kinds of monstrosity. Um, and I would hazard also, you know, this question of death is, is, is that one that is enough. you know is really the fulcrum of. What's going on in Barbie um, the reality of life and the end that it comes to
3: That's so interesting that you bring up death because Barbie did it was a it was a shockingly deep movie, I think for a lot of its audience. I mean, I think it, it kind of it snuck a lot of depth into what was also a joyous and hilarious uh, production um, and and it felt in some ways, I think, heavy-handed and and in and in some ways spot on. I mean, I think there were there there was a speech that the America for Our character made in the kind of climax of the movie that encapsulated the sort of argument against uh Modern feminism, or the or the a rant against all the pressures on women in modern society, that a Wall Street Journal Journal writer noted was kind of like a women's study seminar. I mean, it did feel like there was a little bit of a you know of, of vegetables kind of forced into the movie, and a rumination on mortality at the end that just felt like, wow, you have gone off in a direction I didn't expect. But I think audiences really embraced that, and I think it was. I think you're right, Lily. I think it was about all of the feelings and the anxieties of society right now being kind of on the surface and people feeling okay about latching onto them in a, what would otherwise be a fizzy and light pop culture product.
2: Oh, my only two cents to add here is yet again, I think Barbie was the more successful illustration here because as you say, like, I think death is 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 such a good angle to take because that the moment when Barbie changes tone entirely is just like do any of you ever think about death and mm-hmm. it's like a record scratch, and then at the end yeah you have that scene of her sort of accepting mortality as part of the deal of, of the fullness of being human. Notably absent from the Oppenheimer movie is an is an examination of the actual deaths that the bomb caused in Japan. I mean we we know that and I and, and again like I think part of the Part of the problem with Oppenheimer is that it is not a movie about the Manhattan Project. It's not a movie about the bomb. It's about the guy. Um, and he died of of smoking too much, which is a, a normal thing that happens in that time. But like Barbie, enga- it's it, it's just it took the affirmative stance of engaging with death, the human condition and embracing it as opposed to simply having it loom in the background and, and sort of distracting ourselves with like political political ebbs and flows that that are in some ways much less profound. Um, so that's all that's I, I think I think coming out of Barbie understanding that despite the ever presence of death or the ever presence of oppressive systems, which are present in Oppenheimer as well through anti-Semitism, et cetera and 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 anti you know the leftist, the whole uh, blacklisting, et cetera, McCarthyism, you can have positive change and and have a positive experience on this planet, which I think also we don't really get from Oppenheimer.
0: Well, Louie, I think you've been reading my mind because I wanted to ask each of you, and and maybe you've kind of be- begun your answer, and you're welcome to just chime in and 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 finish finish it out if you'd like, and and, and I'd, I'd love to hear uh, Lily and Joanna as well. But if you could choose one thing, and here's what I've been wanting to ask you: if you could choose one thing that either the directors Greta Gerwig or or Christopher Nolan could have taken on in their films that they sort of left on the cutting room floor, or didn't quite address or didn't address, address as well, what would that be? So, Louis, I don't know if, if you yeah. want to take off on that.
2: Okay, so one thing, I mean, I'll just give you, like, my thesis. My thesis is that Oppenheimer would have been much better set as, like, a wire-style HBO multi-season series where, where, where the movie that we saw is, like, basically season two. Season one was illustrated in the movie, but not really seriously considered. So all the scientists at the Manhattan Project whom we see interspersed throughout the like bomb stuff, they were all bathed in the genesis of quantum physics, which happened in Germany by Jewish scientists in the twenties, and that context is so important to everything that follows. It's important in understanding why Oppenheimer says, you know, America's best weapon in this fight is anti-Semitism, because all of those folks who were doing the the theory were ejected from the the state that we that, we, that became our enemy. That in- incredible, like cultural and intellectual uh, crosstalk, which which cemented the skill set that ended up being in America to build the bomb, was not discussed. And coincidentally to that, like a side story that would have to be told there is about the intra-group ethnic differences amongst the participants. There's only one scene that illustrates that while Oppenheimer was Jewish, he was not the same kind of Jew as a lot of the other folks when it's when I I Robbie, who was Polish and therefore very, very much different t- class of Jew than Oppenheimer, who was German offers him the, the orange. And I think he's, he says he says like Essen in Yiddish or something. And Oppenheimer doesn't understand. Him. He's like, you don't even speak Yiddish, right? Those Oppenheimers like that that contributes to something about Oppenheimer that made him other that set him apart from the American So a a significant bulk of the American physics Jewish community, which is Lower East Side Jews. He's an Upper West Side Jew uh, that was not touched on and I think could have done more to humanize the character and also bring richness to 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 the context. And then I think just to put a button on this season three would have to be about the hydrogen bomb. The fact that Edward Teller, who ultimately stabs Oppenheimer in the back, ends up winning. We do the H-bomb, we build the H-bomb, the Cold War was about the H-bomb, not the atomic bomb. And in order to build that, we had to invent the computer, we had to invent modern digital infrastructure, and really the history of the world starts, in some sense, after Oppenheimer leaves the scene, and we didn't get that.
0: Well, that that's a fascinating tape. One, frankly, I have not heard. Um, and so, yeah, you, you've given me a lot to chew on, I think, uh, uh, with that. So, uh, much appreciated. Uh, I'm glad I asked that question. Um, Lily, how about you? Anything you uh, feel either film, uh, any either director, maybe uh, would have been better served to uh, focus a little bit more attention on, or you feel like they got it pretty much right? How, any anything stick out at you?
1: Well, um, one of the things that sticks out at me in terms of Oppenheimer, and and certainly not in terms of um, Louis, really interesting sort of uh parts that i would have loved to have seen as you say in a kind of serialized way over a couple more episodes is the lack of women in the movie and it's really fascinating in comparison to barbie um where that you know that question looms large like where are the women in in the science where are the women in the story and what work are the few women in the story in oppenheimer actually doing in that film which is mostly just support the men um and and so there's that dimension to the film itself um and these are the kind of films that christopher nolan usually makes um and and so that's just that's that's one thing that i would i would say in terms of oppenheimer um but certainly not nearly as sophisticated as as Louis's um suggestions but i would also say with regard to barbie that as as joanna pointed out they there did seem to be kind of this shoehorning of explication about, you know, sort of the problems for women. Um, And that could have potentially been massaged in a little bit less women's studies seminar way. um, I think. Um, And the other, the other issue that I would, uh, you know, you can't do everything in a two and a half hour movie. That's about Barbies. Um, but sort of more on capitalism on some level um, and, and, you know, sort of Ruth Handler's role and, you know, some of the the problems she faced. Um, those are just some suggestions, but I think Greta Gerwig made a pretty, pretty well done film.
3: On capitalism. That's so interesting. And that I think is the, that represents the, the needle that Greta Gerwig had to thread because this yeah. was, as you know, a Mattel sanctioned movie. Mattel, <laughs> I think, made a brilliant brilliant choice to make this movie and to allow the movie to make fun of Mattel in the gentlest way. I mean, you know, and, and, and that inoculated Mattel, you know, being the sponsor of this movie and allowing itself to look a little bit foolish, inoculated itself from a lot of deeper criticism. So I think that's a really great point. The one other thing, and I enjoyed the Barbie movie very much. So I hate to sit here and, and criticize it, but the, the, the one other thing that I think Greta Gerwig maybe copped out on and her co-writer um Noah Baumbach was I think they copped out on on a really deep uh, consideration of what happens to Ken next because again Ken's arc is fun and also illuminating he leaves Barbie land and his beach job and he goes into the real world he discovers there's this thing called the patriarchy he thinks it sounds fantastic he's going to bring it back to Barbie land and he's going to turn it into Kendom and he does all of the performative masculine things that you can sort of mock and in the end, when when the Barbies get together and defeat the Ken's, Ken just kind of gives up. He just says, oh, you know what? It was really hard to leave. So I'm not going to do it. And I in the real world, I don't see a lot of people willingly giving up power, which is why we're in this position that we're in. So I think um, I think I think the film stated the problem and then stopped short of really examining what the solution might be.
0: Yeah, I would agree with that, too. For sure. I, if I can chime in and agree as well, I, I, I think so. Um, you know, I saw Oppenheimer with uh, two of my children, my sons, actually, and I, I was struck at how uh, it kept the attention at uh, nearly three hours uh, of two 16 year old boys. Um, I, I was fascinated by that, but I was also struck by how one of my sons um, texted me about Barbie and, and, and was intrigued uh in a number of directions about that film and i guess i'm saying all of this to say you know um and apologies to the marvel cinematic universe lily and and uh <laughs> And the, uh, I don't uh, own Mar- stock, so not oh, a big deal. No, no. I, I, I wasn't going to ask, but <laughs> Martin Scorsese's uh, famous uh, commentary about uh, whether or not that's cinema. Seems to me that these uh, very different films, uh, also very dialogue driven, were um, serious, but also entertaining in, in their own way. And, and I guess I wanted to um, begin to wrap up by asking each of you, um, what do you think this suggests about? Hollywood, and, and Louis, you're out there in, in that part of the world, and, and whether or not we can get more of these thought-provoking types of films, a film about a physicist that is nearly three hours that kept the attention of uh, a couple of 16-year-old guys. Um, and, and I think the same could be said uh, for Barbie as well. So anyone, uh, and maybe Lou, if you want to jump I, in with that.
2: I am here in Hollywood. And I, I literally drew, just drove past the, uh, the SAG, strike still outside of Netflix, which is right down the street from me. So again, I, I have I think it goes back to capitalism. I think it goes back to power. Um, it's going to depend, you know, so much of I think. I mean, I, I'm sure Lily and and, uh, and Joanna could correct me. But like, you know, you, you we get so many of these Marvel type movies because they make a lot of money and they enable the studios to, you know, they they power the studios. Um, that equation is changing rapidly right now. And I I, I I'm not I'm not 100% sure of what the details were with the settlement with the writers but that will, you know, have impacts and then whatever they settle with the actors will as well uh, as well. And so, you know, the meta story of labor versus management is going to have a role in defining the future of this kind of media. I'm sure the writers want to do more Oppenheimer and Barbie type things. Um I don't know what I, you know, I, I can't speak for the actors. And then but and it will come down to the tastes of of the audience. It it is it is I think it is great that both of these movies were successful commercially, because I do think that's really important for for, for people to feel like there's a door to walk in after this. So um, I, I definitely I definitely hope we see m- more like this. Um, but, you know, like I say, it, it, it again, it comes comes down to power, uh, understanding that there are structures that have to be changed in order to enable that kind of a thing to happen. And some of it will be on us to make sure uh, that we do the work to change them in a way that allows more of the kind of media we want to be created.
3: Yeah, I'm hoping the lesson, like you said, is don't underestimate your audience. I mean, uh, accept that there are people out there who, if you create something that is powerful and intelligent and thought-provoking that people will go see it. And I think the story of prestige TV has, has been a part of that. I mean, you know, HBO does quite well putting together really smart, powerful, thought-provoking content. And so do a whole bunch of different channels. And again, I, I think you're right, Louis, that the, the strike, the two strikes and how they're resolved uh, might alter the producing landscape and the the money and power landscape that determines what gets produced. But I think that there is a broad audience for interesting, smart content that does comment on our times. And I think if you make more of it, people will watch it.
1: And And I would just say, I think, you know, sort of echoing Louis and Joanna, in terms of you know the audience has an interest in what they're seeing in you know what what a big summer blockbuster tent pole movie is going to be versus you know sort of indie Oscar bait kind of movie, and these both these movies are going to be nominated for a bunch of Oscars, um, so they're you know they're sort of crossing over all kinds of different zones and anticipation, but. It's always funny to me, as somebody who studies popular culture, that when a movie that's supposedly a women's movie, in air quotes, um, makes a lot of money, everybody's like, oh, women go to the movies and they bring their like boyfriends and girlfriends and husbands with them and maybe they go to movies more than once if they really like them and every time this happens like when sex in the city movie came out the first one and all these women went to the movies and dressed up and stuff like that my big fat greek wedding another film where everybody's like oh women go to the movies how interesting and you know the expectation is like um yeah (laughs) and why the the executives at the studios don't constantly think about that and only think about like the young men ages 18 to 25 as you know the prime audience for all movies at all times um it it strikes me as surprising every time people are surprised by this dimension of the audience
0: Well, who knew that women go to movies? Well, listen, um, all all kidding aside, um, this has been a fast and uh, very interesting and entertaining 30 minutes uh, for me. I'm really, um, really excited uh, for our listeners and just grateful to you all. Lily, Louie and Joanna for joining us on this moment in democracy, a bit of a different episode for us, but uh, I think uh, uh, easily one of my favorites. So thank you for your expertise and and for your charity and and joining us uh, today. Really appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having us. This was great. Thanks for having us.
0: Today's podcast has been brought to you by the Eagleton Institute of Politics. Eagleton is a nonpartisan research unit of Rutgers University, New Brunswick. This moment in democracy was made possible in part by the generosity of Gerald and Kiko Harvey and Eagleton's many supporters. To support Eagleton's work or sign up for its newsletter, click the links in the description. Please help support the work we do at this moment in democracy. Visit our podcast page at eagleton.reckers.edu to learn more. We want to hear from our listeners. Email us at podcast at eagleton.reckers.edu to send in your comments about today's episode or suggest topics that you want to hear about.
1: That's it for today. Thanks for joining us.